All right. Thank you for everybody for being able to wake up this morning and make it out. Uh, I've been sick for the last couple of days, so I have this very sexy voice, which is why I'll be using Notepad for the rest of the presentation. We'll just, you just read the whole thing. <laughs> One guy. No, I'm not going to do that to you because I can't spell that well. Um, my name is Nick Molnar. I'm from New York City. Uh, I've been a web developer for a little over 15 years now. Um, yeah, I'm honored to be here speaking to you uh, at NDC Oslo. <clears throat> uh, about three years ago, my buddy Anthony and I, we created an open source project called Glimpse. Just so I can get a feel of the room. How many people have heard of or used Glimpse? Show of hands, please. All right, awesome. Uh, I actually have a bunch of stickers, so if you guys are interested in stickers, swing by after the talk and I can give you some Glimpse stickers. Um, we did Glimpse about three years ago. After about a year and a half of uh, being fairly successful with that in the open source community, we got sponsored by a company named Redgate, who's also sponsoring this conference. So please swing by their booth and say hi. Um, <clears throat> what that has afforded me to do is spend the last year and a half focusing solely on Glimpse. Now, Glimpse is a debugging and diagnostics platform for ASP.NET. And... Uh, it has a lot of uses, but one of the main use cases that people like to use Glimpse for is around performance. So in reality, for the last year and a half, I've spent a lot of time focusing on web performance and the things that we can do to make web applications faster. So if you're anything like me now, you're super worried about this loader bar. It's making your skin crawl. And I'm just hoping that this fat PowerPoint presentation loads in time for us to start the presentation. Oh. Good news, we, uh, we, we loaded, um, so now we can be full-stack web developers. <clears throat> so let's stop and talk about why performance matters really quickly. Uh, to me, it's very simple, and I'm guessing because you're in this room, you already agree that performance matters. But let's cover it really quickly just in case you're not uh, in that place. So performance to me is usability, right? There's been this whole UX movement, that's been a big thing. I think now that we need to start thinking about performance in the same breath with UX and start uh, treating performance as a feature. So you see this uh, hashtag perfmatters up there? That is not some crazy thing that I made up. That is actually the hashtag that people who care about web performance use on Twitter and follow. So if you follow that, you'll get lots of great information, uh, much of which I will give you in this talk. There's tons of studies that say uh, that performance matters. So Google, I'm sorry, Amazon uh, increased their page load times by 100 milliseconds and their sales decreased by 1%. You've heard case studies like this. Google uh, increased their page speed by half a second and they lost 30% of their traffic on a bounce rate. So if you're in the e-commerce world, uh, performance and sales uh, correlates together very well. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're a content publisher or something like that. Well, the performance of your site affects your ranking in the Google uh, page index. So the faster your site is, the higher the ranking you are. So not only does it affect sales, but it affects traffic and eyeballs. Uh, and finally, we live in a world of devices now where I have limited battery life on this thing. And if your website is slow uh, or uses up a lot of my resources, I'm not going to sit on it very long because I don't want to kill my battery. And I know of certain websites that do kill my battery. So for all of those reasons, uh, I think that performance matters. Uh, here's another way of looking at it. Uh, this pyramid, uh, maybe you've seen the my right-hand side, your left-hand side before. Uh, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow was a psychologist uh, who, many, many years ago, before I was born, said that human beings had uh, these basic needs that needed to be met first, and once those basic needs were met, they could move on to fulfilling more advanced needs. And that human beings flourish when they get to the top of this pyramid. So for example, I must have physical safety, I need a roof over my head and I need to be warm before I can start worrying about my self-esteem. And once that is met, I can move on. There's a guy named Aaron Walter, who's a UX director for a company in the States uh, called MailChimp, who's uh, very popular and famous in the UX world, who has proposed a similar uh, pyramid based off of Maslow, which is uh, Aaron Walter's uh, users of software needs. So, users of software need a couple of things. First of all, they need the piece of software that they're using to be functional. It has to solve a problem. 
We all know that because we're developers and we solve problems every day. Next, it needs to be reliable. It needs to solve the same problem over and over and over again. You may remember when uh, Twitter had troubles a few years ago and every other day you would access the site and you got the fail whale. Twitter was not reliable and during that period of time, I rarely ever used Twitter just because they weren't reliable. They fixed that now. Uh, next, software needs to be usable. And these are the kind of the order in which we should be thinking about things. There's no point in having usable software if it crashes half the time. And so usable software is uh, software that's easy to pick up and learn and easy to remember how to use when you come back to it later. The next layer up is performant. That's the layer that I've added in. Uh, performance not actually a word, thus the quotes, but I use it anyway because I'm American and we disagree with a lot of things that Webster said. Um, so performance software is software that does all of the other jobs, but quickly. So let me give you an example. On my machine right now, I have two uh, photo editing pieces of software installed. I have Photoshop and I have Paint.net. 99% of the time when I need to edit a photo, all I'm doing is cropping it. I never open Photoshop to crop a photo because Paint.net is just so much faster at doing that job. So performance matters. Performance matters. And then lastly, Walter suggests, once we've kind of nailed these things, we can start to make our application pleasurable. We can add personality. We can put funny little images and GIFs and things like that that we see at the sites that we love, uh, like GitHub or um, Trello, et cetera, et cetera. So this is why performance matters. Let's, oh, <laughs> actually, there's one more thing that we really need, and that's, that's Wi-Fi. That's the, that's the basic cost for life. Um, just a quick show of hands. How many people were in my talk yesterday? Okay, for you people, I'm sorry. I only have like three jokes. This was the new one. It's gone now, so. I learned yesterday that self-deprecating humor is the best kind of humor around here. Uh, so once we have Wi-Fi, we're good to go. Um, so the problem is we need to figure out how we're going to solve performance problems, uh, and yet we constantly have pressure from our bosses, our stakeholders, our customers, who all they want is more and more features, tighter and tighter deadlines, and we need to accomplish all of these things. Um, and so I've found that the things at the top of that pyramid are the first things that go when you're trying to hit those deadlines or those outside pressures. So I've come up with this attack plan, and this is how we're going to kind of try to focus on the performance problem. Um, so the first thing we need is measurable improvements. Everything we're going to do today is really about me showing you a tool for how to measure performance. Because if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Once we measure it, we'll look at ways of, performing, uh, of improving some common scenarios. Two and three, platform stability and environmental neutrality, they kind of go hand in hand together. Uh, basically, if I summarize that, it means do oranges to oranges and apples to apples comparisons when you uh, test your software before and after an optimization. What does that mean? Run on the same hardware. Run on the same software. Uh, and when I say run on the same software, I mean all the way through. Make sure that caches are primed or emptied the way they were between the two runs. Make sure your antivirus software isn't running on one of the runs. Make sure you don't have any cron jobs going. You'll be amazed at how much you can skew results with simple things that are happening on your machine all the time. Number four is to be scenario focused. I was a consultant for a very long time before I moved full time into the world of open source software. And many times my customers would come to me and say, the application is too slow, make the application faster. I'm here to tell you, you do not make applications faster. You make scenarios faster. You make the login sequence faster. You make the purchasing path faster. You make the search faster. Uh, but you need to look at a scenario that you can run a user scenario through and measure the performance of that and make that faster. Um, you want to have preset goals when you're doing that, especially as consultants. That's important because we're constantly thinking about the money that we're burning. Trello was a really good example. A few months ago, they put out a blog post where they set this goal that they were going to make the main card rendering page 50% faster. And they were going to work on it until they did it. And they did it in five days. Now, that's the luxury that Trello has. Me, as a consultant, I usually don't have that kind of luxury where I say, I'm going to work on it until it's done. Um, but instead, you can kind of flip it around and say, you know what we'll do? We're going to work on this one scenario for the next sprint, the next iteration, and we're going to make it as fast as we can. So it's a fixed amount of time. You know how much budget you're burning up uh, to make something faster. And then finally, what I think is the most important one is you want to approach performance in the order of descending granularity. So get the big wins first, and then focus on the smaller wins as you go. Um, so everything that we talk about today is going to focus on that. On the web, most of the time, remember, I'm going to say most of the time a lot uh, today because you need to measure things. Most of the time, the network is going to be where your biggest problems are. And so that's where we're going to start uh, today. Uh, the good news is also, because that's the largest bit of problems, there's the most uh, documentation and best practices published about that kind of stuff.
Okay, so network. Let's, let's dive into this. So I have a very simple application here. Uh, it's called Mascots. Because I'm American, there's a bunch of things that you probably already know about me. One, I'm fat. I like to eat. I like my baseball. I'm a huge Miami Marlins fan. So they're half a game out in the National League East, if anybody cares. But I know you don't. So instead of making a website about baseball, I made a website about baseball clowns, also called mascots. Uh, in America, there is a minor league baseball s- uh, system. There's 160 teams, each with their own mascot. And so this website is dedicated to them. And you can see all the individual sub-leagues. Like I can go here to the Carolina League. We can click on the, on the link. And you can see here's all the mascots from Carolina. Um, I also have uh, this right here. You can click on the minor league baseball logo. And you can see all of the different mascots from all of the different leagues on one page. And then finally, um, every year there's a contest that the mascots have called Mascot Mania, where they compete in fun Olympic games like pie throwing and I don't know what else they do. They, they throw a lot of pies. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's winners of that. And so some of my favorite guys are in here. Uh, like this gentleman right here, his name is Balapino. He's a half jalapeno, half baseball bat. You can't get any better than that, right? Um, those of you who were around yesterday also know that I'm quite fond of Roscoe the P-Ray Rooster because he, he beats people up. And I have no clue what that has to do with baseball, but violence is good. Just joking. I'm, I'm playing the American stereotype here. Um, so what we want to do is we want to think about how this website uh, is affecting performance on the network. Uh, so the best tool to do that is F12. Now, F12 works in every single one of the browsers. And for almost all of this ne- next section about networking, the F12 tools in your browser of choice will get the job done. I'm showing Chrome because that's the one that I prefer. But you can use Firefox or IE, and you're going to get almost basically the same results. So what I want to do is I want to scroll over to the Texas League. I'm going to go to this network section. Let me go ahead and clear it. I'm going to refresh the page. Now, what you're seeing down here is all of the HTTP requests that were made to render this page to the screen. Uh, there's lots of information here. You can see there's, if I, uh, I can come over here to uh, filters right here, and I can say that I only want to look at images. And so you can see that I have 22 of the 27 requests that were made on this page were for images. I can show you why that's the case. The way I've constructed this page, I tried to make the mascots look like baseball cards, which means that the little team logos you see right here in the bottom right-hand corner are separate images that are layered on top of the mascot image. So there's there's two layers there to make uh, these baseball cards. So everything, everything that you see there is two image requests. Um, so that's kind of cool. We can filter and do stuff like that. Uh, we can dig into any individual request, and we can see all the HTTP headers, uh, if that interests you. Um, what I find particularly of use is the size, content, and time latency. I don't know if that's me or not. Um, so the size, uh, you'll see there on the first one is 4.0 KB. The next one is 8.1 KB. And you can see a number in gray, 3.6 and 7.8. The number in gray is the actual amount of usable content that Chrome was able to use. The number in black is the amount of content that was downloaded. So you can see that for each one, we have about 0.4K overhead of content that we couldn't use but that we downloaded. That is the overhead of an HTTP request that you're seeing over and over and over for all 27 of our requests. On the time, you can see uh, 35 milliseconds with 34 underneath it. Uh, That is how long it took to download, but the latency is how long we took waiting on the network to actually start the download. Now, I'm running all of this locally from my machine, so the latency times uh, aren't, uh, the the download times aren't much more than the latency because I'm getting it fresh off a disk. Um, But you would see much uh, worse performance in other places. There's some other cool things that you can do, like you can turn on this preserve log. And if I turn on preserve log and I browse to another page, the network tab keeps the first request and adds in a bunch of other stuff from the next request you can see here for localhost. I can also right-click in here, and I'm going to copy all as HAR. HAR is a standardized format that's based on JSON that's used for uh, performance experts to pass around this kind of information in a standardized format. What's really nice is if you see a performance problem on your website, you can copy the HAR file, you can email it to a buddy, and they can use any tool on their end, like 
HTTP watch or Fiddler to load that information back up. So I'm just using an online tool. I just pasted the JSON that was copied. And if I do a preview, you can see here are my two requests. I can, I can move back and forth between the two of them and see how they were broken up into you know, what was waiting on DNS, how much of it was images and whatnot. And I can see all of the requests and their headers. So it's a good way to preserve that information for later analysis. Not a lot of people know about HARS, but I think they're very useful. So you may be saying to me, well, that's great, Nick. You just showed me all this way to do measurement, but now how do I know how to improve things? Well, when you've uh, been around the block as much as I have, you kind of get some intuition for what to do. But the Chrome team has done a couple of uh, interesting things to help you so you don't have to understand all this. The first that I'll show you is this Audits tab. If you come to Audits and you hit Run, it will scan through basically all the information that was pr present in the HAR file, and it will give you recommendations. It will tell you what you need to fix. And they present them in this red, yellow, green fashion, where you fix the red first. Once again, they are following descending granularity. Um, so you can see here that enabling GZIP compression and leveraging browsing caching are two of the bigger things that I should do. I've installed an extension to this auditing tab that gives me accessibility information. So you can see here uh, things like uh, my images should have an alt attribute. And this auditing tab does some really cool things too. Like you can see here that I have a bunch of unused CSS rules. If I drill into this, you can see that 15% of my screen.css file is not used. 79% of my normalized CSS file is not used. And my validation.css file is not used at all. So these are great places for me to go and start making uh, performance optimizations. The Chrome team also ships a separate plugin called PageSpeed. Why they didn't just build this into the Audits tab, I don't know, because it's almost the same as the Audits tab, but it's kind of the Audits tab on steroids. So once again, plugin that I've installed, I hit Start Analyzing. It will give you many of the same recommendations, but a couple of extra ones, and it goes a little bit farther to helping you solve those recommendations. Uh, let me show you what I mean. So there's a, a recommendation here to optimize images. If I click on it, it will show me all of the images that I could optimize. And if I open up one of them, it will give me the compressed optimized image. So that is the team logo for one of the teams. All I need to do is right click on this, save as, overwrite the file that's on my disk, and boom, I've optimized that image. I didn't have to go find any external tools or anything like that. Chrome just does it for you. Um, so that's, that's really nice. So. There's a bunch of recommendations here. Let's look at how we would actually fix these things in one of our websites. So I'm going to open up the code for this minor league baseball thing, and we're going to fix a couple of problems. The first thing is we're in web config, and we want to compress data. We want to squish it down using gzip or deflate uh, and send over as few bytes on the wire as possible. It's important to do less. That's the first uh, rule of performance optimization. Do less means two things when you're on the network fewer HTTP requests, and fewer bytes over the wire. So all we have to do in .NET is change a couple of values. You can see here that I'm looking at URL compression under system web server. And I'm going to do static compression. I'm changing that to true. All of my static files, CSS, JavaScript, is now going to be compressed. And all the modern browsers, and when I say modern, I mean even back from like the last eight years, know how to deal with this compression. And if they don't, ASP.NET knows not not to compress. Um, you can also do dynamic compression. This is on the HTML that you're generating on the fly using Razor or something like that. Um, you can run into some problems with dynamic compression, so you need to test it, but for this website, it's fine. So great. In about two seconds, I've just added compression to my entire website. The other thing that, that we saw as a big recommendation is to cache our content. So by me uncommenting this one line in System Web Server, again, I'm saying that for static content, I want to cache it on the client using HTTP headers. I'm going to use the expires header. It's going to add a header that says that the, any assets that are downloaded are valid until 2020. So nobody will try to re-download any of my images until 2020 unless they clear out their browser cache. They get it one time, and every time they go back to the page, it'll be fast. Um, so that's great. Two quick uh, updates. The next thing I'm going to show you is uh, bundle config. This shipped recently, I think .NET 4 and ASP.NET. This is a feature that allows you to take your JavaScript files and CSS, where you might have multiple. Uh, you saw that I had at least three, three CSS files, and merge them together at runtime into one file, which means I'm going to go from three HTTP requests down to one, which is great. Um, and so what I've done here is I've created a 
uh, what I would like to think of as a virtual file at tilde slash content slash CSS. That's not actually a file that exists. I just picked an arbitrary name. But what I'm telling uh, ASP.NET to do is to take these three real files, normalize, validation, and screen CSS, and combine them into this one fake file. So now that I've done that, I can come into my layout. You'll see here is where I'm including those three real files. I'm going to comment that out so they're not included anymore. And instead, I'm going to tell ASP.NET to render. Once again, there's that, that fake file that I had, tilde content CSS. So now only one CSS file will be there, but it's really all three combined. The next thing I'm going to do is uh, leverage uh, a plugin that I have for Visual Studio called Web Essentials. If you're a web developer on the .NET platform, Web Essentials is aptly named because it's essential. Um, so one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to come over here. We've been looking at the Texas League. And so you can see that I have my content. I have a bunch of images. I have small mascot images. These are the actual pictures of the mascots. And I'm going to go into the Texas League, and I'm going to right-click on this folder. And I will go up to Web Essentials, and I will say Create an Image Sprite. Uh, okay, that's fine. We'll save a .sprite file, which is an XML file. You'll see this pop up. This XML file has a, a bit of information in it. It's really just a manifest. You're seeing all of the different PNGs that were in that folder automatically included. You can see that we're going to do a vertical orientation. And now you can see down here in this message that the sprite has been generated. So let me browse to this and explore. Here you can see my sprite that was just created. Um, and so you can see all of the mascots are now in one image stacked one on top of the other. So if we take a look at this image, you can see the size of it is uh, 340K. I think that we can do a bit better. So I'm going to come over and I'm going to use, there's lots of tools for doing this. I like using online tools. I'm going to come to this thing called TinyPNG. I'm going to simply drag my sprite over here. It's going to upload it. TinyPNG does uh, lossy compression. It's actually going to cut some of the bits out. I theoretically am losing some quality here. So I've looked at the before and after pictures beforehand, and I can tell you that I can't tell the difference with my naked eye. So I'm good with it, because as you can see, I've gotten a 72% increase in size. I went from 348K down to 98K for all of my images, because that's that one sprite. So let me go ahead and I will right-click on this, save the link as, and we will just replace my sprite. Great, so now this image is 95.6K. Um, what other optimizations can we do here? Oh, okay, well, so now I created the sprite. The other thing that happens when you create the sprite um, is Web Essentials creates a CSS file, a less file, and a SAS file for whatever flavor of CSS uh, you like to do. If I open up the CSS file, you can see... Oh, that is not the file I wanted to open. If I open up the CSS file, you can see that it's made a bunch of classes where the class is the name of the mascot or the file. So you can see my buddy Balapina right there, Deuce and Hornsby are right behind him. So I'm going to include that in my layout. Um, I'm going to kind of cheat here instead of uh, merging it in to save time. I'm just going to drop the link in there. So now we have two style sheets, but it's still less than we had before. So that's great. And I'm going to update the layout file that we used to render the page. So before, you can see that we were doing an inline style to set the background image to the mascot, right? All of this. Now that I have a real CSS file, I'm going to change it so that we do a class. And that class is going to be the mascot's slug. So the slug for Balapino is Balapino. So that will match the class name of the CSS file. Um, let's see what else we can do. On the page, we'll go back to this page. Well, you know what, let me... On the page, you can see that we have this little baseball. Uh, that baseball is just a tiny image that shows up next to all my headings. Uh, I don't really need to download that over and over again. So instead, Web Essentials, uh, again, gives me this little tool tip that I can go... Uh, so here's that ball. Uh, it gives me this little tool tip where I can say that I want to embed the image as a base64 data URI. When I do that, I get all this gobbledygook. Uh, but that gobbledygook is actually the image, base64 encoded, and put into the spreadsheet automatically for me. So now when somebody downloads that, that style sheet, 
they will also be downloading the baseball, and they won't have to do a separate request. So um, at the beginning, I don't know if you guys caught the numbers, but we are doing somewhere in the uh, area of 70 uh, requests, oh, no, sorry, 70, 27 requests to render the page, and it was like 646K. Um, now that I've made all these optimizations, I've saved everything. Let me go ahead and refresh the page. And you can see that we've dropped down dramatically from 27 requests down to 12 requests and from 646K to 5. Huge savings in about five minutes worth of work. Um, so I think that that's really powerful and uh, something that you should definitely be looking at. About 80% of the problems on the internet are uh, due to the network. You'll also notice that I still have a lot of images. Those are all the little team images that show up on the top of the baseball card. I could sprite those up and reduce uh, by a factor again, but I think you guys get the point, so let's go ahead and move on. So we can do less, right? Fewer HTTP, HTTP requests and less bytes on the wire, but there's other strategies that we can use to help out on the network. Uh, the first of which is to procrastinate, right? If we know somebody doesn't need something right away on our page, we can give it to them later. Um, and so there's a couple of ways that we can do this. First of all, all browsers support this script async attribute. If you've done any performance optimization, you know the best practice is to put all of your script tags as low in the page as possible. You want to have it before the end body tag. The reason for that is uh, because the way that a browser parser works is when it hits a script tag, it stops everything. It stops painting the page to the screen, and it goes off and it downloads that script file. So you have to wait for the script to download. Once it's downloaded, it executes the entire script file. So you have to wait for that to execute. And after all that's done, it will continue to paint the page. So if you push them down to the bottom, most of the page should be painted before we have to run into that, that whole bottleneck. Sometimes we don't have that luxury. Sometimes we need to put like a Facebook like page somewhere on our page for our, our customers. And so you put a script tag somewhere in the middle. Well, Facebook and everybody else has agreed to follow this async attribute. And what ends up happening here is there's actually two parsers in all the browsers. There's a pre-parser. The pre-parser runs through the DOM, and all it's doing is looking for things that need to be downloaded. When it sees this script tag, it will say, hey, you know what? This is async. I'm going to mark this to be downloaded at the end, when everything else is downloaded. So it doesn't get downloaded in order. So it procrastinates and says, we'll download this later because it's not 100% essential. If they get it a second or two later after the content, we're fine with that. Uh, the other thing that you can do, and right now this only works in IE 11, is you can add this lazy load equals one attribute on images. It works the exact same way as, uh, as async. Basically, the pre-parser finds that and marks that as a, a lower priority resource to be downloaded. Um, funnily enough, IE is the first to implement, it's a part of a specification that the W3C is working on right now called the resource prioritization specification. And eventually, every element that it downloads an asset, you'll be able to put lazy load on. But as of right now, it's only images and only in IE. Uh, so those are both very powerful to procrastinate. The opposite of that is you can anticipate. And this is really interesting because this works in most of the browsers. Um, as you can see, except for the last one. We have, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, so you can put these meta tags, these link tags, in your pages. And as we move down the list, uh, they get more and more powerful, but they will use up more and more resources from your, from your user. So the first one is this DNS prefetch, and you point to a domain name. And when the browser parser sees that, you'll probably put it in the head near, near the very top, it resolves the DNS of that domain. So later on, when you request an asset from that domain, you won't need to resolve it at that point. So a good example is if you're putting your images on a CDN, and all of those images are at cdn.mywebsite.com, you need to resolve that host name. By putting this at the top of your, uh, at the top of your page, you'll save yourself about 200 milliseconds off the DNS resolution. So that's cool. Small savings, but pretty cheap. You can do a couple of these. It's not really going to affect uh, your, your, your user. The next one down, slightly more powerful, is prefetch. Prefetch, you point to an actual asset. So you can go off and download something that you know your user is going to need later. So maybe there's an image that you're going to be showing when they click on a button that you anticipate them to click. You can go and download that. So that way, next time, or when they click the button that's going to show the image, it's already been downloaded. You don't have to wait for that download. Now, here's the trick. 
all that this prefetch does is make an HTTP request. So if I download some image, and there's no caching on that image, when the user clicks the button to make the image display, the browser's just going to request the image again. The browser doesn't know that it already prefetched something. So if you're using prefetch, make sure you cache whatever asset you're using. Otherwise, you're going to cost your user twice, which is not what you want to be doing. The last one is really cool, but it's not supported in Firefox. It's called pre-render. Pre-render, you can point at any page. And what essentially happens, this is the way that I like to think of it, is the browser goes off and downloads that page and all of the assets associated with that page and executes all the JavaScript running on that page and it does all of this in a hidden tab. And when you click on the link on your page that would lead to the pre-rendered page, the browser takes the hidden tab and takes the tab the user's on and it swaps them and it's instant. So let me, let me, let me, let me show you that. Um, close the tools here. On the home page, if I view source, you can see that I have this pre-render in here, and I'm pointing to the champions page, because I find that most people come to my website because they want to see who won Mascot Mania, as you would. Um, so, but because I have this pre-render, let me go ahead and press Shift-Escape, and I just opened up Task Manager for Chrome, but very similar to Task Manager for Windows, but this is showing you all the Chrome processes and what they're doing. You'll see that all of my tabs are up here. I have the tiny PNG tab. If I go and close tiny PNG, that tab disappears. Let me, let me dock these things like this so you can see a little bit better. So tiny PNG is gone. You can see my mascots. You can see Octane. This tab we'll look at a little bit later. But you'll also see, oh, you know what? I've probably been on this for too long. There you go. You'll also see I have this tab called pre-render, mascots of, of, of minor league baseball, and you can see it's going to champions. So there is actually a hidden tab there. Now, uh, we made a whole bunch of performance optimizations. Let me undo them. So I'm going to come in here. I'm going to delete the new files that we created. I'm going to revert the files that we changed. I'm going to reload everything in Visual Studio. I'll rebuild. And I will reload this page. All right, so I think we'll all agree now that we're back to the old, crummy version of the site. But because of the pre-render, oh, man, it's like puberty all over again. But because of the pre-render, when I click on See All Winners, look how instant that was. I have all these big images showing up, and it was instant. You'll also notice that the pre-render tab disappeared. Chrome shows you what's happening with pre-rendering in another way. Let me go back to the home page. Because if you go to Chrome slash network internal slash pre-render, you can see here that it's telling me here's all the pages that it currently has pre-rendered. Here's all the hidden tabs that it has right now. Uh, you can see that uh, Champions has been pre-rendered for, for 10, 15 seconds now. And if I come on here and I click on that link, you'll see, boom, that pre-render dropped down to here and says that it was used. And you can see that it's been canceled before. You'll also notice that I've had all of these other things that were pre-rendered when I did a search on Google. Because Google uses this trick to pre-render the first link on the search results. That's why the first link is always so much faster than everything else. Because they're actually rendering it before you click on it. So, that is uh, uh, anticipating what the user is doing. So, quick summary of what we can do on the network. We can do less. Fewer requests, smaller payloads. Showed you a bunch of ways that you can do that really quickly. We want to procrast procrastinate and anticipate. Uh, another way that people... Um, uh, procrastinate is they use JavaScript to only download images once it's come into the viewport. I think the lazy load thing is going to solve that problem. You don't need to do it anymore. But if you have a ton of images, you can think about using scripting to do something like that. Okay, cool. So uh, when we're talking about performance with the web app, we have to think about two different modes. We have to think about the user getting the app, and we have to think about the user using the app. So all of the network so far that we've talked about um, is part of the user getting the app. But the user can't even begin to download things until they've received the, what I like to think of as the main manifest of the page, the main HTML page, the thing that you're creating an ASP.NET or a PHP or whatever your web framework of choice is. Uh, and so that's the server. Now, there are tools to help on the server uh, to figure out what's taking a long time to render the page and whatnot. Uh, but you're not going to use developer tools that are built into a browser for that. Instead, you'll use um, a CPU profiler. Now, 
I mentioned that I was sponsored by Redgate, uh, and they happen to make a performance profiler. Um, I'm not a sales guy, so we're not going to dig into this too deeply, but I'm just going to show you this quick little video so you can basically see the way that these things work. What we care about on the server is how long things take on the CPU. So an Ant's performance profiler, you can profile all different kinds of applications, but you'll see there's a large section for doing things around web development and ASP.NET. Works with any web uh, server, IIS Express, IIS Regular, even Cassini. Um, and once you start profiling a site, you can browse around the site, and you can see that we keep track for you, that's the red humps, how long uh, or how busy the CPU is at any given time. And at some point, you can stop it, which I'll pause right here. You can select a uh, period of time over the red graph, and it will show you the call stack at that moment and which methods are taking the longest. Descending granularity all over again. You find the slowest method, you go in and you tweak that. Now, here's the problem with .NET and C Sharp. We could spend the entire day talking about ways to improve its performance. I'm not going to bore you all with that. Um, instead, I'll give you uh, some quick highlights of things that I've seen uh, and learned by talking to the engineers on the, uh, the profiler team. Uh, for web devs, the number one expense that you have on the server, period, is leaving the process. Leaving the process is doing a database query, doing some web service call, things like that. Move everything in process as possible. That's why caching is, uh, is important, data caching because you're moving things that were once out of process into memory, something that you can access quick. So cache delivery, stay local. Iterate less. A lot of times you'll find when you look at a CPU uh, profiler like ours that the method that took the longest to execute took that long because it was hit many times. It was run many times on a given HTTP request. That's usually because of looping. So let's say that we have some method that gets called 100 times. Sure, we can go in and try to optimize that method, and we might shave off two milliseconds. But it would be better to find a way to drop the iteration from 100 to 80. So if we can filter the collections uh, and only loop over the things that we absolutely need, that's the best way of going about it. Uh, the last thing that I see time and time again is people loading data all in one shot. You need some XML configuration file, or you're reading some, some feed that comes in from one of your vendors or something like that. Uh, and that just kills your memory. So stream data in uh, anytime that you can. There's a couple other little miscellaneous things. The one that, w that shocked me the most, I didn't know this until I worked at Redgate and I was talking to the profiler guys who really dig into the CLR and performance optimizations around that, is string concatenation. Here's the rule of thumb. If you're concatenating three strings, you're probably okay. But even then, you might want to use a string builder. Any more than that, string builder. Better performance every single time. Um, and so I... I I'm lazy. I can concatenate 15 things together because I don't want to like new up a string builder. Uh, but that's what you want to do. There's lots and lots of more things that you can do in .NET to make things better, right? We we have async now. That's really powerful. You should look into that. There's ways to improve your queries that you're making from the server. Um, these slides are all already available, and you can follow that link to find lots and lots more uh, uh, tips and tricks. Cool. So server rendered, set down the manifest, everything downloaded on the network. We've just kind of covered everything that we need to do really quickly to get the application to the user. Now let's talk about how the user uses the application. And so for that, we have compute. So I just showed you a quick little video of a server-side profiler. I didn't drill into it too much because there's also client-side profilers. Uh, and so once again, those are built into your F12 tools, um, and they work... Come on, F12 tools. Ah, function lock, there we go. And they, um, and they work in very much the same way as the server-side tools. Uh, this is built into uh, IE and Chrome for sure. I'm pretty sure Firefox has a profiler as well. Now, my little mascot's a minor league baseball application is not very JavaScript heavy. So it's kind of a boring thing to profile. So instead, what I'm going to use is this thing called Octane, which is a JavaScript benchmarking tool that the Chrome team uses to see how Chrome is performing from build to build. Um, so all I'm going to do is I come in here to Profiles. I'm going to collect a JavaScript CPU profile, and I'll hit Start. Once that starts, I'm going to run Octane. So Octane runs through a bunch of separate bookmark, uh, uh, benchmarks. You'll see a couple of interesting ones in there. They run a Game Boy emulator, which I think is kind of fun. They render a PDF file in JavaScript, which is cool, and that's the way that Firefox does it natively nowadays. Um, they actually compile TypeScript, because that's a very large JavaScript application, and they want to see how they can compile job, uh, TypeScript in the browser. 
So it runs through all of these different benchmarks. It gives individual scores for each of them. And eventually, I will have a score overall for how my machine and the browser is doing against all of these crazy pieces of JavaScript. Um, so one second, and we should be good to go. Great. And I will stop the profiler now. <clears throat> and so what I get is this down here. So the first thing I'm going to look at is this breakdown. This is the breakdown that's very similar to what you, what you might have seen when I paused the video. It's a breakdown of all the different methods and how long those methods took to execute. Uh, that's quite handy. Not really for me, because I didn't write this code, and I don't know what these methods mean. But if I wanted to focus in on one of them, I could select it and press this little eyeball, and that's going to focus in on that part of the call stack, and then I can drill down into there. Um, and so that's kind of cool. I think Internet Explorer actually has a better experience around this right now. I know I've not said that in many, many years, that Internet Explorer has a better experience. Uh, but one of the things that they do is they identify libraries like jQuery automatically uh, and allow you to also add additional libraries. So they filter out library code because uh, I'll see a whole bunch of jQuery stuff in one of my websites, and that doesn't really help because I'm not going to go and performance-optimize jQuery. I'm just going to let them handle that. But filtering all that noise out is great. One of the cool things that Chrome does, though, is it has this uh, flame chart. A flame chart across the x-axis is showing time, and across the y-axis is showing the height of the call stack. And so what that allows you to do is, from a really high level, start to identify patterns in your code. So what I can see here is if I zoom in on this point here, I see all these little tiny dips. Let me zoom in here. I see these little dips Right, where we kind of go down, to, go down to nothing. And you can see them right here, these little pink marks there. I've been able to deduce, figuring that out, that that was a little gap in time between each one of the separate benchmarks ran. So I can see that pattern and focus in on the second one if I wanted to. I also see that this pattern here, it's very sawtooth. You can kind of see that like, these stripes, they look like barcodes down here at the bottom, but they're kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Well, why is that? Oh, because we're looping. And that benchmark, they're looping over something. So you can get a really high picture. Uh, 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 <laughs> wow, my brain is fried. We can get a really high level picture of what's happening in the code. And then you can drill down. You can select a subset of it and, and fix that specific method. So um, basically, the things that you want to do with JavaScript, like my high level tips, um, are to uh, manage your scope well. So you, you may have heard people tell you make sure you're using the var keyword, because if you don't use the var keyword, the variable goes to the global scope. Well, anytime you access a variable in JavaScript, it tries to find that variable in the local scope first. We'll scan through that whole table, if you will, of local variables, and if it doesn't find it, it will move up to the global scope. So you can save yourself a lot of extra scanning if you make sure you're using var appropriately and putting things in the closest scope. Closures and the with statement, never use the with statement. All it's doing is adding an additional scope. It's three layers of scanning now. It slows everything down. Um, and closures kind of do the same thing. Those are really hard to avoid, but be careful what you're enclosing and enclose as little as possible to manage your scopes. Uh, next, uh, this is straight from Crockford's book, Avoid Foreign Loops. Foreign is horrible. It has really bad performance across all the browsers. The vendors know it. They're in, in ECMAScript 6, which is coming soon. They'll have a replacement for it. Don't do it. But if you do some research into how to improve JavaScript performance, the biggest news that you're going to hear is avoid the DOM. Right? It's like being shouted from on high, avoid the DOM, which I think is stupid. Because the whole reason I'm writing JavaScript in the browser to begin with is because I need to manipulate the DOM. I'm reading some values that a user's given me. I'm changing something on the screen. Avoiding the DOM doesn't really help me. Uh, so it's, an, it's a nice thing to say. But the reality is what we need to do is we need to understand what to do with the DOM so we can use it in a performant ma manner. Now, to do that, we need to talk about frame rates. That's because when we touch the DOM, we create a ripple effect. A ripple effect that we don't even see programmatically and until recently haven't had the tools to measure. When I touch the DOM, it means that something needs to change on the screen most of the time. And that means that the browser's rendering engine, which works 100% declaratively, needs to repaint something on the screen. And that takes time. So 
I'm not much of a video game player. I like, I like my Super Mario Brothers every now and then, but that's about it. But I do know that PC gamers are really big on their frame rate. That's an important thing is frame rate. And when anytime we're talking about rendering and how fast something can render, we're thinking about frame rate. And the frame rate that we want is 60 uh, hertz. 60 hertz is what almost every monitor runs at these days. It's basically what the human eye can perceive. What that means is that my screen right now is refreshing itself. It's repainting every pixel 60 times a second. So one second is 1,000 milliseconds. And we're doing a refresh every 60. So take our one second. Let's divide it by 60. And that means that we have about 16 milliseconds in between every time a page uh, or every time the screen refreshes. That's about how much time that we have to make a change. So Chrome allows us to measure this. I'm going to come back over to our application. And I'm going to open up this timeline. I'm going to do something really simple. I'm just going to press record. And I'm going to scroll. Okay, that's enough data for me to sample. That's fine. So I clicked on this events mode, and what it allows me to see is uh, all of the yellow is when some event happened, uh, blue is network time. You can see that anything in purple is layout, green is paint. This is kind of a hard way to see it. I'm going to switch over to the frames view, and you can see um, each one of those stacks has a frame being painted and how long it took. And you'll see I have these two benchmark lines here. I have the 30 frames per second and the 60 frames per second. I just told you that 60 frames per second is what the human eye can perceive. And you'll notice that on my website, I'm going over 60 frames per second many a times. And oftentimes, I'm shooting way, way below 30 frames a second. This creates a phenomenon known as jank. You've seen jank if you ever scrolled a website and it's really sluggish to scroll. The browser's just working too hard to paint. You'll especially notice it on a touch device. Jank shows up on a touch device when you... When you try to scroll or you move the page and it doesn't stick right on your finger, it's like you move your finger to the top and then the page follows you, right? And your finger's always just a little bit ahead. That's jank and it's bad and it's because you're going at less than 60 frames a second. So uh, let's, let's dig into ways that we can fix this. <clears throat> so a, a quick review of what we just saw on that timeline. There's a bunch of different colored bars. They're all stacked up, and um, they mean different things. So the blue is network activity. That's when we're waiting on downloading something. Yellow is JavaScript executing, ours or library. Purple is recalculating styles and layout. That's the browser creating the geometry of the page, making all of the squares that you need to lay everything out. It creates the skeleton. And then green is the painting when it paints the flesh over the top of the skeleton once it's calculated the geometry. You might have also seen some gray or clear stuff. That's stuff that Chrome, for whatever reason, isn't able to measure uh, or just some idle time. We're not going to worry about those for right now because we're going to focus on, on the big picture. So here's our timeline. Every 16 milliseconds, the rendering engine or the, 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 uh, the graphics card is going to repaint and the problem is, with JavaScript and events, right, we do everything on an event. Somebody might click a button, and they might click a button right at this moment here with two milliseconds left. And you're trying to make a change, uh, and you expect it to be painted two milliseconds later. You're not giving yourself enough time. By the time you do your JavaScript and all the rendering, you're not going to get it done in two milliseconds. So what we can do is we can cheat a little bit, and we can use a method called request animation frame. This is supported by all the browsers. Request animation frame takes in a callback function, and it runs every time the, uh, the rendering engine just finished painting a frame, which means that during request animation frame, you basically get almost the full 16 milliseconds. That is how to give yourself the most amount of time. You don't want to be running at some event that happens randomly in the middle. You want to be trying to run at the request animation frame. And when, in that callback, you run your JavaScript, which touches the DOM, which will affect paint and have that ripple effect. And if you can get all of that done, including the ripple effect, within 16 milliseconds, you will have a screaming fast site, easy to use, no jank, 60 frames per second. And so every 16 milliseconds, another request animation frame uh, method gets called, and you go on and on and on. But you can see here this third time, my JavaScript too, took too long to execute. And so when it finished, there wasn't enough time for the rendering engine to paint. And we went over that 16 millisecond boundary, which means that the browser drops the entire frame. 
It's just going to wait until the next interval to pick up again and try to paint something. So that's what's happening on my website right now, which is why we're not hitting the 60 frames per second. Um, so with request animation frame, right now, you'll see that as I scroll this page, I have this little badge up here that shows you the, the icon of the league that we're showing. So when I scroll over to Eastern, it changes to Eastern. And when the Florida State League gets to the top of the page, we switch over to the Florida State League. That's the only real JavaScript that I have on the page. It's happening in an on-scroll handler. You can kind of imagine what that code looks like. It's, it's quite simple. Here's how we could change the code to leverage request animation frame. Um, so <clears throat> I'll capture the scroll position of the window. That's what's happening on that first line there. And then I'll check to see if I've already scheduled uh, the, the change to happen of the image in that if scheduled animation frame. And uh, other... And, and, and I'll return if I have. Otherwise, I will um, set up my request animation frame to swap out the league, the league batch. So what this does is a couple of things. If the user scroll, uh, uh, fires the scroll event more than one or two times uh, in that 16 milliseconds, right now I'm trying to do that work as much as I can in the browser. I can't keep up. And it doesn't matter because if I could get it to happen two or three times within those, two, within those 16 millisecond boundaries, they would only see one update because we're going faster than the screen. And usually we can't. So what we can do is we just slow everything down, and we only update when the page is getting refreshed. We're doing a whole lot less work because we're not just stacking up all this work to do every single, single time they scroll. So this would be a great change for me to make to this website and use request animation frame. Another pattern that we see that's really bad with JavaScript and the DOM is uh, an anti-pattern known as layout thrashing. So this code seems innocuous enough. We've maybe written something like this. So I'm looping over a bunch of paragraphs. Um, I'm taking each one of them, uh, I find the width of some div, and I move the paragraph over to the left so it's the same, so it's right next to the size of the div. No big deal, I just I loop over them. But here's what happens. The, the browser is, uh, is, is honest Abe. Um, it, uh, it will never lie to you. The browser does not lie. So the first time we come through this loop, uh, we, we grab the paragraph off the collection, uh, we get the width of this div, and then we change the left style of that paragraph. When we run this line of code, the browser knows that there's been a change to the, di uh, to the DOM, and it marks the entire DOM as dirty. No big deal. It's dirty. Until we come back around the loop, and we get back to reading this offset width. Like I told you, the browser will not lie to you. So you're asking for the width of a div now that theoretically could have been changed because you moved that paragraph in the iteration before. So the browser stops on this line and says, you know what? They changed something. Let me recalculate the entire geometry of the page. Let me do all of that work so I can figure out what the real width of this div is, and that ret returns it to you. And you do the exact same problem over and over and over again, where you change one value, recalculate the layout. Change, the, change a value, recalculate the layout, and you're doing it over and over. So the easy fix here is to do all of your reads before all of your writes. So in this case, I read that offset width once. I do a bunch of uh, writes. So the DOM gets marked as dirty here. But on the next iteration, I'm not reading anything. So it will let me continue to write, 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 write to the dirty DOM. A dirty DOM is a dirty DOM. And eventually, at some point, I will do a read, or the screen will update, and it will calculate it when it needs to. But I'm not forcing it to calculate the layout anymore. So hopefully, that all makes sense. So those are some things that we can do with JavaScript. There's actually a, an interesting library um, I would recommend toying around with it called FastDOM, which uses request animation frame to allow you to access the DOM in the way that you want to, like, like this anti-pattern here. Uh, but it, what it's really doing in the background is it's putting all of the uh, reads and writes into request animation frames and running them in the right order. Um, so I, I feel like I would mess myself up doing that, but uh, big sites use that library to avoid layout thrashing. It forces you to write in a way that you can't get into layout thrashing. Okay, cool. So that's the JavaScript, and those are things that we can do to make the JavaScript faster, but like I said, we're still gonna have a ripple effect, and at some point, we are going to want to paint. Uh, so let's look into uh, what we can do with that. So on this page, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm going to enable this thing called show paint rectangles. 
Now, what show paint rectangles does is you can probably see on the screen that there's a green that there's a green tint that's going around that logo every time I scroll. You'll also see there's a green tint going around the scroll bar. What show paint rectangles is doing is it's literally putting in green wherever the browser just painted. So on every little scroll, I'm just, I'm just continually pressing the down key on my keyboard. Every little scroll, you're seeing that I'm repainting that logo, which is weird because it's not changing. And yet it continues to get painted over and over and over again. Uh, that's because uh, it is an absolute position. And the background behind it is subtly changing. Right? It's a transparent PNG, and the gradient texture behind that image is subtly changing every time I go. And browsers render in tiles. So if I turn on this composited layer borders, you can see these blue lines. These are the tiles in which the GPU renders the page. Um, and so anytime one of those tiles gets marked as dirty, it needs to repaint that area. So what can we do to fix this? We don't really want to be painting that thing over and over again. So I am going to select this image. You can see I have it here uh, in the DOM Explorer. And there's a class on it called League Badge. So we're going to do a little trick here. I'm going to say dash webkit dash transform colon translate z, which is a function. I'll pass in zero to it. Now you might have noticed instantly that I now have an orange square around that league icon. So what I've just done is I've moved that image into a separate layer. Now these aren't layers like you would think of layers when you think of a z-index. These are layers that the GPU uses to render and do compositing, which essentially means that this California league logo is almost, you can almost think of it as it's on a page of its own now as far as the GPU is concerned. And so the GPU will render the entire background, everything but that orange square, and the orange square separate. And then when it plops it on the screen, it just puts them one, one in front of the other. So that's, uh, that's pretty simple. And what that means is, and now when I scroll, because it's in a separate layer, uh, I changed to Carolina, so it went green. But you can see the entire time I'm on Carolina, I'm not getting green. I'm not repainting that thing because it's separate, and it's not changing because it's separate. When I get to Eastern pretty soon, and it's going to change, you should see it go green. And boom, it goes green, but now it's not. So I'm doing a lot more scrolling with a lot less painting, which is going to help my frame rate. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty cool little trick. Now, you might uh, look at me and say, well, how did you know to put WebKit Translate Z on there, Nick? Well, the reality is it's a hack. Um, this is me knowing about an implementation of the way that Chrome's uh, rendering engine works. And I know that anything that has a translate Z on it will automatically get promoted to its own layer on the GPU. Uh, and, you know, the Chrome team actually recommends that you do this from time to time, but they kind of do it with an asterisk saying, we know that that's kind of dirty because you're leveraging an implementation detail. There are other things that promote layers, um, and the Firefox rendering engine works the same way. So video elements and canvas elements automatically get uh, uh, promoted. Things that have uh, opacity animations, Composited plugins like Flash and Silverlight, they all run in their own separate GPU layer. Um, there's a few other things that are there. There's a spec that's currently in debate right now with the W3C called Will Change. So the reason people don't like the Translate Z is because Translate Z actually has a function, and we're not using it for that function. We're using it to screw around with the GPU. The Will Change spec would allow me to, instead of saying Translate Z, to say Will Change 1 to which I'm telling the browser that this thing is going to constantly be changing, so I want you to pull it out and render it in its own layer. And the CSS community is in a little bit of a kerfuffle about whether or not this is a good idea right now, but keep an eye out for the will change spec, and when the will change spec is in place, this will kind of work everywhere as soon as the browsers adopt it. But until then, WebKit translate, transform Z. Great. So we made that change. Let's see what else we can do. This painting thing is really cool. I like seeing the green. I like seeing what's, paint, what's being painted. So there's another mode that I can, that I can do. Or I'm going to enable continuous page repainting. When I do that, you notice my entire page goes green and stays green. That's because when I'm in this mode, I am forcing Chrome to repaint the page over and over and over and over again as fast as it possibly can. While it's doing that, you can see, wow. 
you can see that I'm getting uh, page paint times up here in the upper right-hand corner. Right, you can see this little graph. And my page paint times are sitting at somewhere around just under 40 milliseconds a refresh. 40 milliseconds every time I refresh my page and I'm not even doing anything. No wonder why I'm not getting in with, with 60, within uh, 16 milliseconds. I'm not getting that, that 60 frames per second. I'm taking too long. I need this number to be somewhere south of 16, right? That's our magic number. Um, so what we can do while we're in this mode, we can leave this little, this little widget up here running and try to figure out what is actually taking up so much cycles. So I'm going to use um, this DOM Explorer again. I'm just going to go and I'm going to select this element here. And uh, this works at any time in Chrome. If you press H on an element, it hides the element. So I got rid of that element, and we can actually see that it looks like things went down a little bit. It's taking a little less time to paint. I'm just going to continue to hide things on the page. And you can see my numbers are continuing to drop as I hide things. Of course, the page is getting simpler and simpler. Oh, look, now I'm right about the number I need it to be. I probably need to be a little bit less than that. So this is really cool. You can just kind of use the H key to hide things and basically bisect your DOM to figure out where all the painting time is coming from. So, I, I mean, I can tell... Uh, that these baseball cards are really causing some performance issues. So now let me drill into those and, and see what's causing the problem. So we'll look at Seawolf here. Um, he's not that complicated. You can see there's the div with the background image. That's, uh, that's the actual picture. Here's the image that shows the Seawolf, the team logo. Um, so hmm, what can we do here? I'm looking at the different styles. All right, well, I see um, there's a box shadow on the style. Let me turn that off and see what happens. So we're at 38 now. I turn that off. Holy moly. I almost cussed because that was amazing. I, I turned off the box shadow and I dropped down to 10 milliseconds to repaint the page. Well, cool. Let's see what else I can cut out. Let me turn off the border radius. Eh, I got another millisecond. Not that big of a deal. Let's turn on the box shadow again. It eh, went up a little bit. Not that big of a deal. Still under my target number. Let me see if I turn them both back on again. Wow. So it seems like I can have one or the other, and I drop the performance big time. But these two properties in combination completely kill the rendering. So um, I'm going to pick one to turn off. Actually, I'll turn them both off. And so we, you can see that we've dropped down to eight, and we've, we've made this fix over here with, with the, uh, the separate layer. I'm going to go to the timeline again. We'll clear. We'll record. And you can see now we are getting almost all of our frames at or below 60 frames a second. And we're getting a couple that go over and that we can dive into farther and figure out why that's, why that's happening. So we just dropped from somewhere north of 30 down, well, south of 30 to north of 60 um, with a couple of small changes. Now, you might be saying to me, but Nick, my designer really wants rounded corners and, and drop shadows, and you just cut that out, and that changes the design of the site. That's fine. What I would recommend that you do in this case is pre-process your images. Go into Photoshop or whatever and add the rounded corners and drop shadows so it's still just an image that the browser is displaying, but you're not using uh, CSS to add those effects, and you're going to get a big uh, performance boost, and you'll be closer to jank-free. Now, I knew to go and look at um, the way that things were painted uh, because I, know, I knew to uncheck the, you know, the, the border box and the, and the drop shadow because I know which properties affect which part of the rendering engine. So here's a handy little cheat sheet. If you see recalculate style, that usually has to do with your CSS selectors. Now, there's a lot of articles out there on the Internet that you can find about optimizing CSS selectors, and the Chrome team used to have a, um, a CSS selector profiler that would allow you to see which selector was taking long and go and optimize them. They feel like at this point that, sol that problem has been solved. They've even removed the profiler. Uh, you can still optimize, but it's a super micro-optimization to worry about your selectors at this point. Anything that manipulates the box model, width, height, left, top, that's going to affect the layout. So if you're seeing a lot of purple layouts, go and focus on the box model properties. The rest of the properties are like color and background color and blah, blah, blah. That's all going to be paint time. And if you see green ones that say composite, that's usually things that are happening on the GPU. Um, and things that happen on the GPU are good. 
in general. It's very fast. It's very efficient at painting. And so there's four things that are considered to be jank-free. That's scaling, rotating, moving, and fading the opacity of something. Those are all using those functions like the translate that I just showed, translate, scale, rotate, that are available. They're all hardware accelerated. So if your designer wants you to do some animation or some effect on an image, try to keep it to one of those four, and you'll have a pretty good performance. Um, so closing up, uh, there's a bunch of resources available, lots of interesting things. I didn't cover the psychology of performance, which is a very interesting read for when you can't fix performance. How do you trick somebody into thinking that it's still fast? Um, I, so I recommend that book. There's a whole bunch of other books up here. Anything by Steve Sauters is amazing. Jenkfree.org is really good if you're into the rendering stuff in HTML5 Rocks. All of those resources are available from this uh, QR code uh, and link. Um, if you have any questions... What time have we got? We got here at 12.40? Sorry, 11.40? Yeah? 11.20. Oh, so we're five minutes over. So I'm going to be kind to the next speaker. Um, I'll take questions out in the hall, or you can tweet me at NickMD23. I really appreciate everybody showing up. Please leave feedback. Please visit the Redgate booth if you appreciated this talk and say hi to those guys. Thank you very much.